Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung, and welcome to Prophecy Today. I am so pleased you could join us because we have breaking news out of the Middle East. United States and its allies have attacked Syria and their chemical operation uh, that supposedly was used on their own people. We need to understand this. Ken Timmerman standing by in southern France to talk with us about that. We'll talk also with Winky Madad about the Holocaust. That'll be a focus of this broadcast today. David Wilder from Hebron, the oldest Jewish community in the world, He's going to be reacting to what the Mufti of Jerusalem said recently. Palestinians can sell no land to anybody. And David James and I will have a very important conversation as it relates to war. Does the Bible give Christians the right to go to war? Well, these are all key subjects, issues that we need to deal with here on Prophecy Today. But on Friday evening at around 9 p.m., the President of the United States addressed the United States and the citizens of it, telling them that he had given the go-ahead order to the United States military for the purpose of attacking Syria and their chemical weapons operation. We do know they had allies, United Kingdom and France, All of the parties had confirmed the use of chemical weapons in Syria, and the project seems to be successful. We bring to these microphones now Ken Timmerman in southern France, the man who looks at geopolitical activities around the world for us. Ken, I've given somewhat of the overlay of what did take place. And let me just ask this, and I know you're in southern France, and I understand that uh, you know the French society pretty well. Why do you think President Macron would give the go-ahead, the United Kingdom, that's in the European Union at this point in time at least, to join with the United States? What was the purpose for this attack from these three allies? Well, I think uh, Macron and the British Prime Minister both wanted to um, make a clear statement uh, that there is an international norm against the use of chemical weapons. Both Britain and France still consider themselves to be major powers, not superpowers, obviously, but major powers. Both are nuclear weapons states. And uh, they wanted to be on the side of the United States in this particular battle because it showed a united front and it showed that they also supported this norm of no chemical weapons use. That seems to be the reasoning that uh, both the leaders of the United Kingdom, France, and the United States are giving to the international community, but they're also claiming that they were able to confirm chemical weapons of mass destruction had been used. How do we really get a confirmation of something like that? Well, that's a good point, but uh, you're right. Uh, President Macron said on Thursday Uh, that the French uh, government, assuming the French intelligence services, had positive uh, proof that uh, there was a chemical weapons attack on April 7th in Douma. Uh, They attributed it to the Syrian government. Uh, It's difficult, Jimmy, to uh, absolutely attribute such an attack or even to substantiate it unless you have monitors on the ground uh, who can verify it. Now, the, the, there's an international organization for the prohibition of chemical weapons based in The Hague. They have uh, already said they will be sending monitors, but it's uh, a little bit late at this point. The Russians, of course, have claimed that the 
This attack was a uh, set-up job. It was uh, faked. Uh, but we don't know that yet. I am assuming, and I think we have to assume this, that if President Trump uh, and the British Prime Minister and the French President, all three of them agreed to launch these strikes in reprisal, they felt 100% confident of the evidence. Uh, and I note also that one of the targets was a chemical weapons manufacturing facility. And so if they were able to determine that that facility was still making chemical weapons, I think that in and of itself uh, provided justification for the attack. Early Saturday morning, the president of the United States went to his Twitter and said it was a success. He thanked his allies for joining with him in this attack on the chemical operation there in Syria. It was a limited attack. They went after three particular targets. It took about 15 minutes. They used uh, the Tomahawk missiles, the B-1 bombers. But we really can't know if it was successful unless we just wait a bit and see if Assad continues to use these chemical weapons. Is that not correct? Yes, but, you know, in, in, to the extent that the U.S. Uh, and our allies, that we managed to degrade the Syrian Air Force, that's something that's immediately, uh, that can be immediately measured. Uh, and, and I don't think you should, uh, we should expect that uh, Assad uh, will not have any chemical weapons left. The key thing here is deterrence. Has this reprisal attack deterred Assad and deterred the Russians and the Iranians as well? Uh, from pushing him to use chemical weapons. We're only going to know that, Jimmy, by, by his actions in the future. Yes, and that's going to be observed very closely by the Allies and by the world. You know, Bashar Assad had said he had destroyed all those chemical weapons. We're in the process of continuing through a seven-year civil war. Many are thinking that it was near its end. The rebels are failing to accomplish their goal to overthrow Assad. And the partners, and we're talking about Russia and Iran, they're propping up Assad. That's presently how it is, as it helped or hindered what the situation is as it relates to the civil war, this attack. Well, right. And, and remember, uh, in his address to the nation, President Trump also gave a direct message to the governments of Russia and Iran. And he said, uh, do you want to be on the side of a mass murderer? Do you want to be on the side of, uh, of a regime that murders its own children and its own citizens uh, using banned uh, chemical weapons? It was direct. It was basically naming Putin and the Ayatollah uh, and calling them out. Uh, I don't know, you know, in recent history that a president has ever done that before. I think it's a pretty dramatic statement, and it was an important one to make. Well, and also it had to be made for the international community because of the fact that the international community, as I understand it, about 197 different nations have signed the treaty that they will not use chemical weapons. And I don't believe, except for the war between Iraq and Iran back a number of years ago, have chemical weapons been used? Of course, we do know Saddam Hussein went after the Kurds with this situation. Uh, it looks to me like this had to be a a signal sent, and I want to talk about the signal sent. Did Syria get the message, you think? Honestly, I don't know yet. We we, we have to see. Uh, if, if, if the strike did serious damage to Assad's military capabilities, I think it's going to make him think twice about using these weapons again. They don't have a dramatic impact on the battlefield, I have to say. Uh, they, they are not militarily precise weapons. Uh, they attack civilians, not uh, combatants. 
uh, they are weapons of terror, specifically weapons of terror. Uh, you know, you mentioned Saddam's use of chemical weapons against the Kurds. The last use was in 1988 in Halabja and uh, again the final battles of the Iran-Iraq war against Iran in July and August of 1988. It was precisely those battlefield uh, uses of chemical weapons that led to the 1989 Chemical Weapons Convention, which in fact was signed in Paris. Well, it's interesting that the world pretty much is on the side of the United States and their allies on this attack. Russia, however, has said that there was no such thing as chemical weapons usage. It was all a staged situation. And very interesting also, the, the attack itself was so precise that they did not come near or try to harm in any way the Russian presence there, nor the Iranian presence there. Do you think Russia and Iran got the message, or are they just going to be as steadfast in their stand to stand up Syria as they have been in the past? Well, it's very interesting, because in the days before this reprisal uh, strike, uh, the Russians had been saber rattling and saying, well, we're 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 not going to allow any U.S. missiles to hit Syria. We're going to defend Syria. Uh, they were flying uh, missions with their version of an AWAC, AWACS aircraft and their their most modern uh, Su-34 bombers, fighter bombers off the coast of Syria. Uh, very, very close to U.S. naval warships in the Mediterranean there. And yet, guess what? When the missiles started to fly, the Russians didn't do anything. Uh, my guess is, and, and, and the Iranians even more so, my guess is that neither one of them realized that they wanted to get in between those missiles and their targets. It would have been deadly for them. Ken, part of the axis of evil, according to George W. Bush, was North Korea along with Syria and Iran. What about North Korea? Did Kim get the message there in North Korea, and is this a good setup for the meeting that uh, both Kim and Trump are to have? Well, uh, it's interesting that you ask that. Former Senator Lieberman had an uh, opinion a column at Fox News the other day where he said this type of strike that did not go after the Assad regime would be precisely the kind of message that the U.S. should be sending to North Korea. And the message is this, is that get rid of your weapons of mass destruction. If you don't, we will take them out, but we won't necessarily take out your regime. We'll take out the weapons, but we won't necessarily strike the regime. And the object of that, the point of that, is to essentially discourage or to deter any kind of uh, response from, in this case, Syria, but also from North Korea down the line. You know, the Bible talks about a scenario in the end times where a gathering of nations in the Middle East under the leadership of the leader of Russia, supposedly, will come to try to destroy the Jewish state of Israel. It'll be another superpower that will be the European Union or as it morphs into the revived Roman Empire. Antichrist will come along. He will ultimately confirm a peace agreement, which will give the signal for these people to go ahead because the Jewish people will lay down their arms. That scenario seems to be moving closer because Syria is the first nation to make a move in that prophetic event to happen in the future. That's why I wanted to get a hold of Ken Timmerman. And Ken, thank you so much for being available. This is key information you've given us. Great thought. We appreciate it. We'll talk again next week. Thanks so much, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll have a Middle East News update. David Dolan standing by. All ahead right here on Prophecy Today. 
Prophecy Today is heard all across the USA on the Prophecy Today radio network, but also it is heard around the world through our website at prophecytoday.com. And Jay, there are many other features on our prophecytoday.com website, like daily news updated out of the Middle East as it pertains to what's happening prophetically. Special reports can be heard right on our website at prophecytoday.com. We have Prophecy Q&A available for you. Questions asked in the past can be answered on the website if you just check it out and go to that particular spot. Prophecy Quiz is available, and parts of our Prophecy Today program, if you should miss any part of it, will be heard the next week right here at prophecytoday.com. And don't forget, you can even email your questions to us for our live radio broadcast. Just go to our website at prophecytoday.com. You'll be amazed, you'll be surprised at what you'll find on our website. Be sure to visit us at prophecytoday.com on the World Wide Web. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Jimmy D. Young here at Broadcast Central, Chattanooga, Tennessee. A key program for you to join us on today. And I've asked, of course, for the 90 minutes, we need to have that much time to look at current events happening around this world, the situation in the Middle East, and we're going for a report from David Dolan from that region of the world. Now, we need to understand what God's Word has to say about this situation. We're living in a time, perilous times, as the Bible said they would be, as we approach what God's Word says will happen, rapture of the church, the terrible seven-year tribulation period, and then on into the return of Christ, the kingdom and eternity future. We try to cover as much as we can to help you stay abreast of where we are. So glad you could join us. Now let me bring to this broadcast table David Dolan with his Middle East News Update. We've been talking about the Syrian situation, David. Talk to me as it relates to Israel. What are their concerns as it relates to just to the north of them? Their main concern, Jimmy, according to reports I'm getting personally, but also the Israeli media has been reporting this, is that a clash could take place between Israeli forces and Russian forces. And uh, there was a telephone call late in the evening on Wednesday between Prime Minister Netanyahu and Vladimir Putin. Several Israeli media outlets said that there, there was shouting between the two leaders, that they were quite angry with each other, and basically Putin uh, laying down his bottom line that Israel needs to stay out of Syria. No Israeli actions will be permitted anymore against the Iranian bases there, the growing Hezbollah presence there, the 
other uh, targets that Israel has been involved with, some of them being Syrian government targets because of uh, Syrian military action across the border of the Golan and some other things that took place. So this is a very, very grave situation, and Putin said, we want you out. We don't want you coming in here anymore, and uh, reportedly we will fire at your jets and missiles if they penetrate any, any further. Netanyahu responded, look, we didn't invite uh, the Syrian civil war. We This again, according to press reports, I wasn't, of course, listening to the conversation, but we didn't invite a war north of us. This started internally with part of the Arab Spring, and we certainly didn't invite a country 800 miles to our east, Iran, uh, that's openly declaring it wants to destroy us for no reason other than its religious hatred, its ideology from a, a fundamentalist uh, Shia Islam, and yet there they are building military bases just uh, 25 miles from our northern border, and some of their forces have been spotted uh, along the Golan border, he pointed out reportedly, and we can't tolerate this, we won't tolerate it, and we reserve the right to strike at these positions and anything else that's threatening us from anywhere around our borders. And Putin said, no, you don't, and we'll fight back. And so it was a real tense standoff between these two leaders, uh, Jimmy, that had pretty good relations up until then, although one can imagine that was because Netanyahu was biting his lips often and not commenting on the terrible things uh, happening in Ukraine, etc. Uh, again, I pointed out, Jimmy, that the opinion polls in Israel show that amongst the million Russian-speaking Israelis, Putin's quite popular. They think he's a great, powerful guy, and they're kind of proud that he's brought uh, Russia back onto the world stage in such a strong way and that he's uh, you know, in the region. But, of course, they understand, as Jews, that he could easily go back to the old Kremlin policies of anti-Semitism, anti-Israelism, and we've had some strong statements this week from uh, Moscow against Israel, Jimmy, and it's looking like that is the way the tide is turning. Well, you know, it's interesting to me. There was an article in the Jerusalem Post that Israel's chief rabbi has urged Prime Minister Netanyahu to bomb Syria. In other words, uh, the Russian immigrants into Israel may be on Putin's side, but the rest of Israel says, go ahead and do what needs to be done. We can't allow this threat to be at our northern border. And I think, Jimmy, that's increasingly true of Russian-speaking Israelis, too, because, again, there's that kind of sentimental pride that, oh, the country we came from that was great when we were kids, and then this empire was desolated, and the, the Soviet Union collapsed, and here we are you know, uh, coming back, so there's some pride in that, but they are watching, and they understand that Putin is doing some nasty things, and certainly the Israelis don't want to see sarin nerve gas, and I've mentioned many, many times, I began an end-time novel with this, that sarin is in the Syrian arsenal very, very strongly, that they have the capacity to kill hundreds of thousands of Israelis with this nerve agent on missile caps, uh, Jimmy. Of course, these were barrel bombs that were dropped uh, in the Damascus suburbs that set off this whole thing, uh, which only, by the way, the Syrian government has, and they came from the air, which the rebels don't have any capability. This is supposedly a plot, the Russians say, but that's rubbish. But, you know, the Israelis uh, don't want sarin, and the Russians in Tel Aviv don't want Syrian sarin nerve gas on their skin. And we saw some of the pictures uh, of what that actually does. It's a horrible 
nerve agent, Jimmy. And so that the Syrians said they got rid of all of it. The Russians confirmed that. Well, guess what? Another lie. And so I think increasingly Israeli-Russian speakers are also going to see Putin as an enemy. He hates Israel, it's looking like. And again, we could actually see some military clashes, of course, more than that, between U.S., French, and British forces and Russian forces. So a very serious situation indeed. Yes, indeed. And in the meantime, Iran is threatening to destroy Israel if they don't cut off their childish games. Now, I'm not sure how you define childish games, but it's a major threat from Iran. Well, Jimmy, what amazes me, it's to be expected, is the tone that the Russians, the Syrians, and the Iranians have been taking on the world stage, their speeches at the U.N., their press conferences in their capitals. They're talking like Western Democrats, you know, that believe in democracy and freedom and wonderful things like this. And, you know, the West is being provocative. It's Donald Trump that's starting all this. It's I mean, good grief. It's the stuff that's going on on the ground and has been going on on the ground, not just in the Middle East, where Iran has been aggressively expanding its power and influence. I mean, again, there were no Iranian forces in Syria 20 years ago. There were just a few 10 years ago, and now they've got whole battalions there. What are they doing there on Israel's northern border, declaring they're going to destroy Israel? And again, what is Russia doing in in Ukraine and uh, getting ready for a possible attack? attack into the Baltic states, and we have the Korea situation. The world's exploding, and uh, the Middle East is at the center of all that, and, Jimmy, the Israelis are at the center of the center of that, as you well know. And watching all of this uh, gathering storm, we haven't even mentioned another player, Turkey, with its forces invading from the north, and, I mean, it really looks like a novel from World War One, the build-up to World War One, and frankly, the build-up to World War Two, where we had all these pieces happening, you know, uh, Hitler invading Austria and Poland, and nobody saw at that time that this would lead to a world conflict. We'd have it in the East Asia and in the West, but we have all the same ingredients in place today, Jimmy, and it's a real dangerous situation, but I think a red line has to be drawn at the use of sarin nerve gas. If that is allowed to be used, and again, this is a government using it on its own people, I mean, that's absurd. If that line isn't drawn, then there are no lines that will ever be drawn. You were talking about the lead-up to World War One, World War Two. This may well be the lead-up to World War Three, or the wars and rumors of wars Jesus talked about in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24. Israel has made a promise. They say they'll topple the Syrian regime, Bashar Assad, if Iran, they didn't say anything about Russia, but if Iran makes some very foolish moves to try to come into Israel and do what they've promised to do to wipe them out. Well, yes, and the uh, Russians, of course, are also saying that they will strike back at the sources of any fire against them, which would mean uh, British, U.S., French uh, ships and aircraft. And uh, Israel, you know, could just get in the crosshairs. If Israel does stay on the sidelines, Jimmy, I think Iran will try to draw it in. Now, that seems kind of dumb because Israel can do a lot of damage to those Iranian forces. But they want a conflict. They want to fight. They're the ones that have started this. They came to Israel, not the other way around. And Israel has no uh, choice but to fight back. And uh, it looks like we're 
at that point, Jimmy, Saudi Arabia will probably be involved in others. So it may be avoided, but this is the closest I've seen the region to a major war uh, well, since I moved to Israel in 1980. And this is the reason David Dolan steps behind these microphones to assist us in looking at a key region of the world, the Middle East. We're talking about all that's unfolding in the Middle East, Syria on the edge, Russia and Iran, players in Syria, Israel and the United States, along with the United Kingdom and France. Boy, those are the players of the end-time scenario that is found in Bible prophecy. David, key that we have you to give us this input. Appreciate it so very much. I understand you're going to be burying your brother there in Idaho this week, so we'll be praying for you and the family after his home going. Praise the Lord, he's out of this mess, but uh, we'll be praying for you and your family, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you so much, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I have Winky Madad standing by. You know, this last Thursday was Holocaust Remembrance Day. I do believe the Bible tells us there's going to be a Holocaust worse than the one during World War II. We'll talk with Winky Madad about that. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set, every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, and you're listening to Prophecy Today. We move into our second half hour. That's another 30 minutes of the 90 minutes I have requested that you would give me each and every week as we talk with our broadcast partners across the world to help us look at current events in light of the prophetic scenario that's found in God's Word. So let's get underway. We're going to the center part of the state of Israel, to Shiloh. That is a location, great historic significance, biblical significance, and indeed a very unique community of Jewish people in an area that is referred to as well, the West Bank by some, but technically the term biblically is Judea and Samaria. Our broadcast partner there, the former mayor of Shiloh, a man connected to both the media in the state of Israel and the political arena as well. But Winky Madad, the man we're talking about, Winky, we want to talk about today uh, the Holocaust Remembrance Day that took place on Thursday. Now, there is an International Holocaust Remembrance Day. I think that's sometime in January, 
put forth by the United Nations. But the state of Israel itself has a special day that they set aside to remember the six million Jews killed during the Holocaust. That was a dastardly event that took place, and indeed it has to be remembered, does it not? Yes, it needs to be remembered. And Jimmy, while we're talking, whatever is going on in various places in the world, whether it's Syria or Southeast Asia or other places where similar, not exact, but similar events of one people taking the lives of an entire community, entire people even sometimes, in various degrees, are still not a scourge, that still mankind has not removed from its agenda of deeds, of dastardly deeds, is still with us. So while the Holocaust was something very unique in the sense of an industrial, mechanized murder machine that took Jews out of homes, derived from them as much as possible enslaved labor, including the clothes on their backs, and then after they killed them, the gold in their teeth, and then committed them to concentration camps, and afterwards gassing them and eventually burning them in crematoria. So it was horrible, and we as a people feel a need to remind ourselves not only of the horrors of that, but the fact that Jews did fight back in various ways of resistance. And so actually, as you well know, Jimmy, the day in Israel is called the Holocaust and Heroism Day, uh, to recall both sides of that horrific period. A horrific period, of course, and very difficult to even stop to remember, albeit it is a necessity that the Jewish people do remember it. Take just a moment, if you will, Winky, describe the events of the Holocaust Remembrance Day for us. What are the activities the Jews are involved in the evening before and then all that day? Well, Jimmy, of course, no entertainment or frivolous activity is allowed in public places, in other words, theaters and other places. In fact, at least on the night, the eve of the holiday, the evening of the holiday, usually cafes close early, and the mood in the country, as you probably can testify to, becomes very, very somber. There is a uh, state ceremony at the Yad Vashem Memorial Center, uh, off of Har Herzl uh, in uh, Jerusalem, in which is tended by from the president to the uh, prime minister, his ministers, uh, Supreme Court justices, and all sorts of diplomats. Usually about 1,000 to 2,000 people from the public manage to get invitations. It's broadcast. Almost every single television channel and radio program, at least through the night until the early morning sometimes, maybe even till noon, we'll be having programs of films, of testimonies, of for discussions. It's, you see, one of the advantages, Jimmy, of having a Jewish state is we can do a, a huge educational program using state apparatus. So uh, that comes into for this past week on Holocaust Day, and as you probably know, on Independence Day this coming week, it's uh, a, a similar type of outline of activity, both public and private. And at the end of the day, usually at a kibbutz called Ghetto Fighters Kibbutz in the uh, Western Galil, will have a, a closing ceremony because they were 
very prominent, not exclusively, and that's another political problem, but I won't get into that today, very prominent in the ghetto revolts and the partisan activities and other uh, fighting actions against the Nazi war machine. And just in case you're eavesdropping on this conversation, you don't know what time in history we're speaking of. It's the Holocaust that took place during World War II uh, when Adolf Hitler and his Nazis were trying to rid the entire world of the Jewish people. Throughout the history of the Jewish people, there's been other times when they were killed, slaughtered, in fact, but we're referring now in Holocaust Remembrance Day to World War II. It was a terrible time, wasn't it, Winky? It was a terrible time because, and now I'm talking basically as a Zionist, Jimmy, <laughs> uh, we had nowhere to go. Nowhere. There was an Evian conference in 1938 to decide which countries would take refugees, and a few thousands managed to get into England, hundreds Literally hundreds only got into the United States, and then the British gave us the infamous White Paper 39, which limited immigration to 16,000 Jews a year in Palestine, which wasn't even fulfilled by the end of the five-year period. Ships couldn't get in. Ships couldn't get out. They couldn't cross borders. And then the war broke out, and, and Hitler, from France to Russia, and with the help of uh, fascist Italy, up to Finland, closed down Europe and simply went about his business of his evil maniacal mind of exterminating the Jewish people. That's the word he used in German, exterminate. It was, it was horrific in the sense of a total loss of power and a sense of helplessness. It's that thing that we fight in our memory, both of it and of the heroism that some Jews managed to display. And another reason that the Jews stop to remember this horrific period of their history is they want to be able to make the statement, never again will this happen. That's a an ongoing commitment that they make, isn't it? It is. And since now we've jumped to the beginning of the 21st century, when you have a country like Iran threatening us, and no one in the United Nations really saying anything except for Nikki Haley, of any strength, of any courage, uh, in these international forums. When UNESCO denies our relationship to Jerusalem, which you and I, Jimmy, have discussed several times on these programs, uh, what I call historical denial or identity theft of the Jewish national uh, peoplehood. And you look around and you see what's happening in Syria to what are Arabs doing to Arabs? Imagine what, if they could, what Arabs, some Arabs, would want to do to Jews. You have to remember this because man, unfortunately, Jimmy, when he denies God or misuses God and his good books, is capable of doing the worst and, in fact, the most evil if there's no one to stop him, whether it's a moral voice or physical confrontation or threat of the use of force, counterforce, that will put an end to evil and hold up good. Let me just uh, be very solemn for a moment and ask the question, could this ever happen again? Could there be a worse Holocaust than the one during World War II in the future? Jimmy, there could be attempts. I don't think that Israel or even most of the Jewish communities would respond in the way they did in the 19, late 1930s and throughout the World War II. It's a different situation, and I can simply point, I don't want to go holocausting uh, totally, 
but if you take a look at the situation, for example, in England, where the Labour Party under Corbyn and his hard-left Marxists are simply turning anti-Semitism around, it's not the Jews, it's the Israelis as, as a substitute for the Jews, and the Jewish community is responding very well. In France, a little bit less so, although there is response. The United States has a very strong Jewish establishment community that, that highlights anti-Semitic activity and tries to prevent any outbreak of anything greater. But you ask on the Holocaust, my firm belief is that uh, it will not happen again because now we have a state and we have the power to prevent it. And God's Word does say that He will intervene if there's anybody who endeavors to try to wipe out the Jewish people forever. That's an absolute promise from the all-holy God. And we praise the Lord for that, don't we, Winky? As he said, I th- you'll be the expert on this, I think it was in Isaiah, the surviving remnant will always be protected, and uh, I believe that. I think it's, I've seen over my past, I'm not going to say exactly how old I am, Jimmy, but about <laughs> six decades of mature living, yes. I've seen it, and uh, I put my faith and trust in the Almighty. As do I, and any Bible believer has to accept that as well. Winky, it's a pretty serious subject we talked about today. I thank you so much for reflecting on the Holocaust for us. We, as Christians, need to remember this as well, but also bring to the table God's protection for his chosen people. Thank you, my good friend. We'll talk again soon. Jimmy, thank you for having me on, and goodbye to you and our listeners. Very important conversation with Winky Madad as we think about Holocaust Remembrance Day. Uh, Let me just say there will be a worse Holocaust according to the book of Zechariah, chapter 13 and verse 8. We'll get more into that when we take a look at the book a bit later on here on the broadcast. Well, we're going now to a region of the world that is key in understanding the end-time scenario that is found in Bible prophecy. I'm talking about the European Union, which I do believe is at least the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire that will be a key player in the end times as we study that from God's Word. The man who covers that for us, John Rood, And, John, a lot of activity in Washington, D.C., there in London and also in Paris, France, as these three countries seem to be coming together in order to go after what they do believe was a chemical weapon attack on the people of Syria by the leader of Syria, Bashar Assad. Now, as the European Union member states are considering this, Do they believe this is similar to the Saddam Hussein situation, or is this a different matter altogether, and they have to go after somebody who's going to use chemicals against his own people? The chemical weapon issue, of course, has come to the forefront. It's been described as the red line, and how to deal that, to be certain that there's no escalation. Indeed, the situation has changed just in a matter of weeks. First, the nerve agent and the chemical weapon used on the spy attempted assassinations in the United Kingdom 
And then now here we're having where people or nations are actually launching missiles and retaliation from uh, expulsion of diplomats and so forth. So the big question is why? Why has this issue continued? And, of course, nations have their own uh, particular agendas. And first and foremost, we see the formation and alignment of this Russian-Middle Eastern coalition that's working from the book of uh, Ezekiel. Now, the fact that the United States, France, and the United Kingdom have come together to bring to issue the chemical attack in Syria, this is very interesting because, again, it brings division in the, in the European Union. The German chancellor came out and said that they would not take part in any possible military action. The EU is basically, the commission is basically saying we're going to wait for the EU foreign ministers meeting on Monday. They have a conference on Syria at the end of the month, but they're standing aside. So the Allies have acted together with the spy poisoning, the expulsion of the Russian diplomats, and now the President of the United States is saying it's time to stand together against the chemical weapons. So we've seen this grow in a tremendous fashion very quickly. The pronounced takeaway on this is we see the division in the EU, which is so typical of the iron and clay of Daniel, and we see the alignment of the Russian Middle Eastern coalition from Ezekiel, and not only are they happening to, uh, together, but the interesting thing I see here is that they are related. So the division of the EU, which is so pronounced in the scripture, is actually related to the relationship of Russia. Well, it looks like to me Prime Minister May is really very active in coming alongside President Trump of the United States in any retaliation against the Bashar Assad regime and the possibility they were the ones who led this chemical attack on the Syrian people. Is she trying to distract everybody from Brexit and how it seemingly is almost falling apart? Not quite. I mean, there's some bumps in the road ahead, but why is she so interested and being a part of this coalition, in fact, setting subs out there off the shores of Syria for the possibility of uh, sending missiles in. Yes, Theresa May has taken a strong stand in the alliance, and it is peculiar that the U.K. has such a leadership role despite Brexit occurring. I would say that the United Kingdom is basically always stepping up to the leadership position in Europe. I wouldn't say it's a, a, an intentional plane. Uh, it's just the fact that the U.K. is the leader in these matters, and the European Union, through Brexit, is, see, is going to see that they're losing a very key player on the military aspect. The European Union very strongly wants to form its own army because the army is one of the biggest steps towards the political union. Their, their ultimate goal is a political union and an alignment of nations politically. So that's why we saw the monetary union and then the, the uh, military union and then the political union. But the fact is, is that today's European Union is so fragmented, they can't begin to do that. So I believe that the U.K. and, and Prime Minister May are simply doing their part as normal, and it's just in the context of a very 
fragmented EU military. Well, it also may mean, John, that uh, the United Kingdom wants to say, hey, we can stand by ourselves. We can indeed go ahead with Brexit, accomplish that goal. We won't be a part of the European Union, but we're still going to be a major player in the world as well. We're watching all of this unfold from a perspective that uh, Russia is continually saying, hey, we've got proof that this was a staged event. And at the same time, you have President Macron there in France who says, hey, I've got proof it was the Syrians who did this. I mean, we're going to have to come to some decision. The alliance here with the United States, the United Kingdom, and France, they need to come together with the absolute facts before they do any moves against Syria, don't you think? Yes, Russia has always retaliated in uh, verbally, and here they're saying if there's a launched missile strike, which seems imminent, uh, that they would actually shoot down the missiles. Uh, the French President Macron has been uh, very supportive of the military action, and just in the past weeks, uh, remember as well, the French forces were the countering the Turkish forces in Syria. And actually, the United States and France military have been doing joint military exercises. There were 350 naval uh, soldiers, uh, sailors as well, doing maneuvers. So this is something that, even though the response has come up quickly, the preparation has been much deeper. And, you know, the issue of the chemical uh, attack again, has been the red line. It was the French president that used that expression. And even without the chemical attack, we have to understand that the Syrian war, it is a disaster. There's 13 million people that need humanitarian assistance. In the last seven years, 400,000 Syrians have lost their lives. And so... There's no surprise when the regime is using chemical weapons against its own people. Finally, people are saying this draws the line. And we're looking at nation states that are a part of an end-time scenario that is laid out very specifically in God's Word. That's why we bring John to this broadcast table to help us see how this is all coming together. John, thank you so much, my good friend. We'll talk again next week, staying on top of this story. Thank you. Very important report coming from John Rood on the European Union, a key region of this world as it relates to Bible prophecy. Book of Daniel talks much about it, chapter 7, 9, and 11. Study God's Word. It'll help you understand why we use certain broadcast partners around this world. Well, we're going to stay in Europe. Normally, we would go to Israel for the conversation I'm going to have with my next broadcast partner. But since he is in Europe, and I'm talking about David Wilder, longtime spokesperson for the Jewish community of Hebron, very interesting location, second most sacred piece of real estate for the Jewish people, located about southwest 35 miles outside of Jerusalem, the site of the burial for the patriarchs Abraham Isaac, and Jacob. It's quite ironic, David, that I catch you in Bulgaria there in Germany for our conversation, especially in light of the fact a couple of days ago it was Holocaust Remembrance Day in Israel. Did you not think it was a little bit ironic you would be in Germany on that special day? 
Yeah, Jimmy, it left me with a quandary of, of different feelings. You know, being here, on the one hand, you're not really participating in all the ceremonies that, that we have uh, in Hebron and, and throughout throughout the country. On the other hand, we have to mark the Holocaust because of, of where I am right now, because of, of what happened uh, rooted here in, in Germany. Uh, and it really left me with strange kinds of, of thoughts and feelings but I hope that I won't have to do it again. Yes. Uh, well, praise the Lord for the opportunity to be able to catch up with you. I know that you're in Germany. You told me uh, that earlier we would catch you there because you're there for some medical assistance from a doctor who is really a specialist, and he is there only in Germany. So we'll be praying for your wife. Well, David, the reason I wanted to get a hold of you, there was an announcement made earlier in the week by the Mufti of Jerusalem, he issued a fatwa, which is a very important religious ruling. Sheikh Hussein, who is the Mufti of Jerusalem, said there can be no selling of the Palestinian land. Now, why I think it would be good to talk with you, I know there's been a conflict going on there in Hebron, back home for you, where there's been people who have offered, Palestinians, offered a piece of real estate. Uh, some of the Jewish people in that community purchased the piece of real estate. Then they denied, they sold it, and on and on it goes. I, I really have uh, several questions. Number one, how can the sheik say that the city of Hebron goes back to them in any way, shape, or form, and thus you cannot sell that land in Hebron? Boy, I, as I remember, you've told me so many times that's the location of the first Jewish community Abraham, about 4,000 years ago, established. Quite ironic what the Sheikh Hussein, the Mufti of Jerusalem, is saying, isn't it? Well, first of all, I think it's very important to note that what this Arab said a few days ago is nothing new. Uh, this has been, first of all, under Jordanian law. It's a capital crime to sell uh, for a Muslim to sell property to a non-Muslim. Uh, that policy was adapted, first of all, by the PLO and then later by the Palestinian Authority, whereby it's a capital crime to sell any property, not only to a Jew, but to anybody who's a non-Muslim. So that's me and you and most of the people listening to this show. Actually, if you go into the Times of Israel, if you do a search on Google, a few years ago, uh, Abu Mazen Abbas, the president of the PA, said that anybody who is a citizen of the Palestinian Authority or anybody lives within Israel, any Arab who sells property to a Jew, uh, per particularly to a Jew, would be sentenced uh, to life imprisonment with hard labor, uh, despite the fact that by their own law, it's a capital crime and they can actually kill people, execute people for having sold property. And this is something that's happened in the past, primarily since 1967 when we came back to Judea and Samaria. Arab land dealers have been murdered by other Arabs uh, in the PLO and, and the Palestinian Authority. It's nothing new. Uh, the question that you ask as to, you know, how can they declare this well, you know, as far as they're concerned, anything goes. And this is, they call this religious law, according to the Quran. And of course, they, last year, the, uh, the United Nations, uh, UNESCO declared Hebron and the tomb of the patriarchs to be a, 
a national heritage site for the Palestinian people, denying any Jewish rights there whatsoever. But of course, they did the same thing in Jerusalem. Uh, so it's not very surprising. This is something that they've been they've been saying for years. Uh, they try to use this as a deterrent to prevent uh, Arabs from selling property to Jews. But it, it still happens. Uh, and as a matter of fact, I can give you a piece of good news. There were two buildings that were purchased by Jews in Hebron a few years ago. Uh, and then, of course, after the people moved into the buildings, they were almost immediately expelled by the Israeli government. But a few weeks ago, they moved back in. Not only did they move back in, they moved back in with the written consent and permission of the Israeli government. The permits were signed by the Israeli defense minister. So we have been able to purchase property and move back into it. Uh, albeit uh, a very difficult process, a very expensive process, but it can be done, uh, and we'll continue to do that. It, it's a slow process, but we'll continue to do that as long as there are people that are willing to sell us property and we can come up with the necessary funds to purchase it, then we'll do that, and it may take time until we can move into those buildings. But the uh, Mufti of Jerusalem, look, the present Mufti of Jerusalem is walking the footsteps of the uh, Hajjamin al-Husseini who was appointed by the British to be the uh, uh, Mufti of Jerusalem back in 1921 or 1922. He was a a Nazi, met with Hitler in Berlin. He was basically the person who incited the 1929 riots, which brought about 67 people murdered in in Hebron itself. So this guy is is just walking in the shadows of Hajjamin al-Husseini, saying the same thing, trying to do the same thing, calling up for the destruction of of the state of Israel and, and the Jewish people in Israel. But that's not going to deter us. That's not going to keep us from going forward. And that's absolute because God's word said the land is promised to the Jewish people. And when I talk with David Wilder, he is absolute evidence that what God has promised the Jewish people will come to pass. David, we pray for your wife uh, with the medical care she's getting there in Germany. We look forward to talking to you uh, again real soon. Haksameach, as it relates to the 70th birthday of the nation of Israel. And thank you so much for being available. Thanks, Jimmy. It's a pleasure. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I'm going to be talking with David James. We'll have a conversation. Can Christians be involved in war? What does the Bible say about that? It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. We're broadcasting from Broadcast Central in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Judy and I home for the weekend, one of our grandbabies having their first birthday, Elise, the daughter of Rick and Sarah. After 20 years, they had a child and have already taken her to Israel. By the way, if you've been to Israel, hey, we're going to do some family tours upcoming this next year. If you have a family and you can't go to Israel during the school year, but you can in the summer, you need to contact us. We are going to have a tour that the family can participate in so they can walk in the land of the Bible as well. In addition to that, we have upcoming next fall some second-timers tours. If you've been to Israel with us, you need to come again, and we'll take you on a brand-new tour almost. Not every single thing, but it's going to be an exciting time. Go to my website, prophecytoday.com. Go to Joshua Travel. You can find out the information. And while there, why don't you answer my poll question? It's on the left-hand column. Scroll down. You'll find the question. Here it is. With the 
threat of a Middle East war today and the remembrance of the World War II Holocaust, do you believe that there could be another Holocaust of the Jewish people as foretold in Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 8? That's the poll question. Go to my website, prophecytoday.com, to answer that poll question. We now bring to these microphones David James. He and I weekly have a conversation that will assist you in coming to a biblical understanding of issues we talk about, helping us to know how God's Word leads us in our daily walk with Him as it relates to these particular issues. Today we're going to be discussing a Christian's biblical view of war. But before we get to the discussion, David was recently in Hungary, there ministering and visiting with his son and daughter-in-law and their three children, uh, their brand-new grandson. I'm sure David had a great time with that. David, you had to return early to get back to the United States for some medical testing Uh, We don't need to go into all the details in particular, but uh, you did see the doctor, and we want to pray for you. Just a quick word of how it's looking, everything going okay, or we need to be really deep in prayer. Yes, things are actually much better than uh, I originally thought they might be. There were enough concerns to cut my trip short, which meant I didn't teach class in Hungary and then also was not able to travel on to Ukraine. But I did see the doctor yesterday, and uh, things are are looking up right now. I still have some tests to go through, but I don't think there's anything particularly serious, although I was originally concerned that there might be. Well, we'll continue to pray for you, David. I said we're going to have a discussion on the current situation there in the Middle East concerning Syria's apparent use of chemical weapons. And now, David, I want you and I to focus on a look at a biblical discussion on war, which is a subject that really actually divides many Christians, doesn't it? Well, it does, and, uh, you know, we have to be honest, it is a tough issue, and uh, I think that there is room for good and godly believers in general, as well as Bible scholars, to come to some different conclusions uh, in the details, and certainly, as you've been discussing today, this current issue with Syria, the latest in a long series uh, and a long history there in the Middle East, but of course, that's not the only thing facing the world right now. There's the broader issue of Iran and its nuclear deal and uh, what President Trump and the new Secretary of State, assuming that he will be confirmed in the near future, what will happen with that. Of course, uh, Israel's security and America's role is really Israel's only protector in the world. And then you've got the situation with this upcoming meeting, apparently, with the North Korean president or uh, and dictator, we would have to say, the ruler there. And so there are a lot of things on the table. And then, of course, Russia plays into this. I think that's a wild card. And so there are many things that, that we have to think about as Christians and uh, the place of the United States in the world, as well as Christians and their role in all of this as well. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think it would be good help, very helpful for us to discuss from a biblical perspective how did international geopolitical conflicts actually begin in the first place. 
Well, I would say it actually goes back to Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. Of course, there you had Nimrod, who became the uh, one world ruler, the king of the world at that time, who established a city there in Babel, as well as Nineveh and other cities as well. So he established a one world government, and through the building of the Tower of Babel, uh, wanted to establish a one world religion. In fact, as I teach God's plan through the ages, I honestly see... Nimrod as being, I wouldn't necessarily say a type of the Antichrist, but certainly a foreshadow of a one-world ruler over a one-world government and a one-world religion. And uh, this was in direct disobedience to God. Uh, The world had one language at that time, and God actually judged uh, the world and brought judgment upon uh, Nimrod, that one-world government, and God divided the languages. And if you go back into Genesis chapter 10 with the table of nations, what we find is the descendants of Japheth were actually uh, divided along family lines, and I would say that probably happened for Ham and Shem as well. And so this developed into tribal conflicts as they couldn't get along with one another, and over the centuries and millennia that has turned into international geopolitical conflict. So it has its roots as almost everything else does there in uh, the first part of Genesis. David, I think a major question has to be what about the role of government when it comes to protecting society and restraining evil in the world. So then uh, I want you to rehearse for us the biblical basis for governments using lethal force as one of their God-given functions. Right. Well, actually, you back up just a little bit earlier in Genesis, and uh, we know that the flood was precipitated. We find in Genesis chapter 6 that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And we know that that precipitated the destruction of the entire world with only eight survivors, Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. And after the flood, uh, waters receded, and God established a covenant with Noah, the Noahic covenant in Genesis chapter 9, we find that a rudimentary form of human government was put in place, and that was for the restraint of evil, and God introduced capital punishment. So just as we continue to be under the judgment of the Tower of Babel and the implications from that, the Noahic covenant is also eternal, and so we are also under those stipulations that God has put government in place for the purpose of restraining evil not just at the domestic level, but I would say that each nation has a responsibility both internally and externally. And if you go to Romans chapter 13, we find that this concept continues in the New Testament, where Paul says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, because there's no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. But then he goes on to say that God has actually put governments in place, and that the government does not wield the sword in vain, for he's God's minister to avenge and execute wrath on him who practices evil. And so I would say that would be both internally and externally. So I think there is a biblical basis for that. As the world is anticipating a possible joint strike by the United States, United Kingdom, and France against Assad's regime there in Syria in the next couple of days, it could happen actually, Would this fall into the category of what might be considered a just war? And then, David, expand that. What are some of the guidelines for the doctrine of a just war? 
Well, in this regard, one of the most well-known quotes is something to the effect that the only thing that is necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And we certainly saw that in the years leading up to Hitler's Nazi Germany and what he did throughout Europe, and we've seen this throughout the world, throughout the millennia, that if good men don't stand up to evil, then evil will triumph. You know, I think even if you go back into the Old Testament, God put into place some guidelines, I think, for what would constitute a just war, and I think we can make an argument for it. And certainly there's a lot of philosophy and things that have been done by both philosophers and theologians to establish this. In some of my research, I found six conditions that some people, at least many people, tend to agree on considering what justifies or what is considered a just war. One, it must be for a just cause. And in the case of Syria, for example, or in North Korea and Iran, you have innocent civilians being massacred, slaughtered by the hundreds of thousands in some cases. The war must be lawfully declared by a lawful authority, and certainly there have been governments put into place. And even though the United Nations, with all its flaws that we would have serious concerns about, it still is recognized as a lawful authority, and we would say established by God as a joint of nations around the world. The intention behind the war must be good, and that would be as opposed to evil. You should look for other ways, in other words, diplomatic ways, try to exhaust diplomatic uh, possibilities, and there must be reasonable chance of a success, and then the means that must be used in proportion to end that war. In other words, you don't just drop nuclear bombs, you try to uh, advance things in a proportional way. So we could discuss this all day long, but these are some of the things that are generally considered. David, Christians have different views concerning whether believers should be law enforcement officers, for example, or part of a military force, because it can and often does require the use of deadly force domestically and internationally. Well, you know, I've thought about this quite a bit, and, you know, I I know that there are those who would say that they shouldn't be part of that, but I I find it a little bit logically strained to allow other people to carry weapons or other people to defend us to have a free country and to protect us in the world and to protect us in our communities, to allow other people to protect us with uh, deadly force while not being willing to take up to protect our neighbors or our country ourselves. So i find that a little bit of a a, a vacuous uh, argument there, and so I do believe that we can make a case. And even Jesus talked about taking up a sword with his disciples, and so, again, that combined with Romans 13, where we are a part of a government and we can form a militia, I think that under God's design that uh, a case can be made for this. What about those who argue that Christians should be pacifists? and they should refuse military service as conscientious objectors. Now, what biblical arguments do they use, and do they have a case that needs to be considered? Well, two of the primary lines of argument are loving your neighbor as yourself and then as well as loving your enemy and also the idea of not resisting an evil man. But I think that's something of a misapplication. It's one thing if I personally don't resist an evil man. I think it's a far different thing if I see someone who I could protect, let's say a child or a woman who's going to be raped or experience bodily harm. I think that I have a responsibility to protect that person 
person, even if I'm willing to lose my own life myself. And another thing I think that needs to be considered, that ultimately Jesus Christ himself is going to command the greatest army and fight and win the fiercest battle that has ever been fought on this planet. So Jesus himself is not actually a pacifist in that regard, but actually we, along with him, will fight in that last battle as we return with him in Revelation 19. David, we've got to wrap it up. What are some principles that we should keep in mind as we form convictions about these things and as we think about protecting our families, our communities, our nation, and even other nations? Well, as I said at the top of the segment, there's room for good believers to disagree, and I think we need to be gracious with those who hold a different view. I think we always need to walk in the Spirit and be guided and seek to come to greater understanding of the Word of God. We aren't to seek revenge or take the law into our own hands. We are to submit to our government. We shouldn't be gleeful or nonchalant about the prospect of using deadly force, and we need to pray that the Lord will protect us and our loved ones so that we are actually personally never in a position where you have to make some of these very difficult choices. Great conversation, David. Great insight that you've given to all of us who have been eavesdropping on the conversation. And we do need to take some serious thought about what God's Word has to say and look for its direction as we form these convictions. David James, and I want you to pray for him now. He's still looking to see what the problem is. The doctors are going to be visiting with him, giving him some tests to do that. So keep him in your prayers. Hey, David, thanks a lot. We'll have another conversation next week. Thank you. Well, thanks, Jimmy, and thanks for praying, and thanks for all those who listen to the broadcast and will be praying as well. I sincerely appreciate it. You're certainly welcome. Hey, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, I'm going to put this all together, and we're going to take a look at the book, The Word of God, as it relates to our discussions today. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of biblical prophecies of the past as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets and your life will be changed as you better understand, like Daniel, where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298 or visit us at schoolofprophets.org. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. 
I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. It's time right here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. You know, we talk about political activities with our broadcast partners, and that's what we do mainly on this 90-minute broadcast. But we set aside the last eight minutes of the broadcast for me to reflect upon the events we've talked about with our broadcast partners, and then I'll open the Word of God, the Bible, to see how the prophetic scenario found in his Word fits into current events, and we look at these current events in light of biblical prophecy. As always, our broadcast partners did an excellent job on the broadcast today from all around the world. We had these men dealing with the issues, the current events out there that we need to look into so that we can better understand how God's Word is coming into focus and helping us to realize how close we are to the next event in God's calendar, the rapture of the church. Today we focused on two particular issues, the Holocaust Remembrance Day that was on last Thursday in Israel when the entire nation stopped for two minutes to honor the six million that were killed during the Holocaust of World War II under the leadership of Adolf Hitler and his Jew-killing Nazis. And then we also focused on the chemical attack that has taken place in Syria. Now, we say it has taken place. The Russians are denying there was any type of a chemical attack. They say it was a staged event. Meanwhile, we have the president of France, Macron, making a statement he has absolute proof that it was a chemical attack, and it was done by Bashar Assad, the president of Syria, on his own people. Those are the two issues we're going to cover as we take a look at the book. Three points I want to bring to your attention. The first one, the past Holocaust. Again, I mentioned to you it was a result of Adolf Hitler who wanted to rule the entire continent of Europe. And so he put a plan together to get rid of the Jews. Now, at that point in time, the Jews were not allowed to own real estate. So what did they do? Well, they became professors. They went into banking. They became lawyers, corporate presidents, because they could not own a piece of real estate. They were not allowed because they were Jewish to do that. So they went into that part of the economic system of our world, ending up with the fact that they became very wealthy and movers and shakers as the world was unfolding. This caused Adolf Hitler to hate him. He wanted to be the emperor of the Roman Empire, which he had studied much about and played into that role as well. So he put a plan together to wipe the Jews off the face of the earth. Now, he did begin to do that. He killed one-third of the Jewish population, Of the 18 million Jews that were alive on the earth at that time, 6 million of them were killed. 
remember that figure, one-third of the entire Jewish population were wiped out. He worked with a man named the Hajjaman el-Husseini, who had been made the Mufti of Jerusalem. The Mufti of Jerusalem was the most high-ranking Muslim cleric in the entire Middle East. In the early 40s, Adolf Hitler invited the Hajjaman el-Husseini, the Mufti of Jerusalem, to come meet with him in Berlin. He revealed to the Mufti how he was wiping out the Jews in Europe, and he suggested that the Mufti would take charge of the entire Middle East and have all the Jews killed under his preview, and he gave him the most powerful radio station in the world to be able to do that. That radio station, a million watts of power on the shores of Monaco, but the Hajjaman el-Husseini would use that powerful radio station to call for the Muslim world to rise up and kill the Jewish people. We had a conversation with my broadcast partners. Winky Madai got in-depth as it relates to the Holocaust, and we talked with David Wilder. He was in Bavaria in Germany. Quite ironic, he is a Jewish leader of one of the ancient Jewish communities, Hebron, oldest Jewish community in the history of the world. And, in fact, uh, he was in Germany at the time of the Holocaust Remembrance Day. You can go to my website, prophecytoday.com, listen to those conversations, go to PTRN Prophecy Today Radio Network. Then we got to our broadcast partners to get information about the present potential holocaust. Bashar Assad has been involved in a seven-day war. Over a half a million Syrian people have been killed by the forces under the leadership of Assad, president of Syria, trying to fight and survive to keep that leadership role and going after the rebels who are rising up against him. On April the 4th, there is a report there was another chemical attack. Remember a year ago, Bashar Assad supposedly led that chemical attack against his own people. President Trump responded with Tomahawk missiles. Right now, Syria is on the edge. You've got to remember, Russia and Iran are located in Syria, major players, and they're trying to set up a presence in the Middle East that Israel does not want to happen. However, Vladimir Putin called Prime Minister Netanyahu to tell him to stand down as it relates to Syria. Now we go more in-depth with my broadcast partners, Ken Temmerman, David Dolan, and John Rood as it relates to that particular potential holocaust. Now let me get to the point, there will be a holocaust in the future. A prophetic holocaust is talked about in Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 8. In that passage of scripture, it talks about two out of every three Jews. That would be two-thirds instead of one-third in the first Holocaust. Two-thirds of all Jewish people on the earth are going to die during that terrible time of trouble, the time of Jacob's trouble, which will be the seven-year tribulation period. The Lord will be using this terrible time to bring the Jewish people to him so he can become their Messiah, their Savior, and they can become his people. That's what the Bible tells us. Book of Deuteronomy chapter 28 said the Jews would be scattered. They were 2,000 years ago. They would be regathered, but during that time of scattering, they're going to be under the threat of their own life. We see that all happening. We understand there is a prophetic holocaust that is coming in the future. It'll be worse 
than that first one back during World War II. And that is my prophetic perspective on the news today. You know what's next, of course, when we talk about all that we did? It's the rapture of the church. And that rapture could actually happen before I finish this broadcast. In fact, it could happen at any moment. And having said that, nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.